located in the foothills of Wyoming's spectacular Wind River Range, Wyoming Catholic College, an accredited four-year Great Books Institution, is built on the ancient Western tradition of the liberal arts and the freedom of the American West. The college offers its students an immersion in the primary sources of the classical tradition, the grandeur of the mountain wilderness, and the spiritual heritage of the Catholic Church. Students experience the illumination of imagination and intellect through the great books and traditional disciplines, literature and philosophy, mathematics and theology, science and Latin, and an outdoor program second to none. The college celebrated an in-person graduation with its seniors last year and welcomed its largest freshman class ever this year. Learn more about the college's unique space in the world of American higher education at wyomingcatholic.edu. Elizabeth Cantor joins us today. She is senior editor at Regnery Press. She's the author of the Jane Austen Guide to Happily Ever After. Uh, I, I need that guide. I need it badly. Uh, she has another book that isn't, isn't new but addresses uh, a timely subject. It's called The Politically Incorrect Guide to English and American Literature. Welcome, Elizabeth. Thanks so much for having me on, Mark. You earned a doctorate in English at North Carolina Chapel Hill. Before getting to the contents of the book, tell us, did your experience in grad school lead you to this particular topic? Did it ever. Um, <laughs> I, I was at um, the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill in the venerable English department um, when it was essentially um, uh, mobbed, not in the literal sense, more, more, more recently than, than, than what happened to me in grad school. I have seen an actual mob of UNC students um, dancing around the Confederate statue that I passed every day on my way to class um, and essentially tearing down the statue and essentially dancing the Carmagnole like um, the frenzied French revolutionaries described in Charles Dickens' A Tale of Two Cities. Um, so the mob I'm talking about is a, a sort of uh, metaphorical mob. Um, who uh, came tearing into the graduate department there, the whole English department, and persuaded a critical mass of the authorities uh, and, and the, the students, who, the graduate students who also put pressure on the professors and the administrators, that um, Chapel Hill was just behind the times because we were just stupidly still studying the great books, Shakespeare, Chaucer, John Donne, T.S. Eliot, when instead we should be studying Karl Marx and um, various crazy radical feminists and Michel Foucault and uh, Jacques Derrida and a lot of um, uh, decadent and, in every sense of the word, um, and uh, cutting-edge transgressive European philosophers who wrote in languages that we didn't even know uh, instead of being, um, you know, trained to be intelligent scholars and critics of English literature, which is what I had gone there for. So um, it was, it really broke my heart. And that was part of the reason that I wrote that book. What is the Politically Incorrect Guide series? Because it is a series. Yeah, um, it's uh, it's a it started with Tom Woods' um, uh, Political Incorrect Guide to American Literature, and the point of the series really is um, 
to bring up facts and truths and history and literature and um, a whole range of, of uh, kinds of knowledge that are um, falling from people's view because they're no longer politically correct. Um, so this censorship movement that we see that has now reached the level of canceling, you know, everything from Thomas Jefferson to sheet music um, because those things are all supposed to be white supremacist or oppressed women or somehow not fit for our consumption, um, was uh, getting started or at least reaching kind of critical mass when I was in graduate school and one after another of these humanities departments were abandoning their their mission lest, you know, it offend some leftist. Um, so it got harder and harder to learn about American history in a history department or to learn about Shakespeare in an English department. And this series of books published by Regnery, um, which is also where I have my day job as a, as a book editor, um, is you know, has issued this series of books on a bunch of topics that you might not otherwise be able to, to find out about. You, will, and we'll get to why English and American literature fit in this kind of series. And, and as I said, you, you, you are an editor, you're, you're a senior editor, I believe, at, at Regnery. You know one curious thing in the beginning of the book about literature professors, which I've noticed too. I noticed it in the last 15, 20 years. They are bored with their own subject matter. What is this about? You know, I don't really know. I, I, I guess I can analogize or draw on my own experience. Um, I, I, you know, people pick their field of study for a lot of reasons. And really, if, you, if you're going to be an academic, you ought to be picking your field of study because it's passionately interesting to you and you can't put it down, right? Of course. Um, but... I don't think that always happens, and it it really wasn't, I mean, in my own personal case, I will just confess that it wasn't until years later that I looked back and said to myself, you know, really, I should have written my dissertation on Jane Austen, who is my passionate desire to read, reread over and over again, and, you know, but... For reasons of pride, you know, I didn't want to be put into a sort of a ghetto of women's literature. I wanted to be working on the really hard stuff. Um, I ended up writing um, about William Blake, who I mean, nobody can argue that William Blake is not interesting and worth studying. But I think I would have done a better job writing my dissertation about something that I cared about more. So, you know, there probably are a lot of other people in English departments who pick their field of study, you know, for similarly imperfect reasons. And when something more exciting comes along, like um, feminism or Marxism, and and they can think of themselves as um, changing the world and making everything better. Um, I mean, I, I think we've seen with various forms of identity politics, that there's almost no stronger urge that human beings have than the urge to feel good about ourselves, to think well of ourselves. Um, I mean, that's driving so much of this cancel culture and critical race theory. And, you know, for, for white people are desperate to think that they're not as racist as other white people. 
people on the East Coast are desperate to think that they're not as dumb as those rubes they grew up with in the heartland, you know. And I, I just think that the sense of, um, of uh, you know, dear self, as Jane Austen would say, uh, is it drives a, a lot of these problems. The boredom, I, I would think it would just just carry over to the students. I mean, aren't you guys excited about what what, what you're teaching? Don't you want? <laughs> and you know, no wonder, no wonder we see enrollments in English and and humanities courses generally uh, going down and down. Yeah, you know, I've started to wonder about that when this was all happening. When you know. Um, a Marxist professor who later on became the chair of the UNC Chapel Hill Department basically came to one of my graduate classes and did a kind of a call to Jesus, except for it was a call to Marx. You know, you all have to commit to Marx. Um, and I thought, wait a minute. Okay, first of all, are the are the citizens of North Carolina paying this man to convert us all to Marxism? I don't think so, right? Why is he doing <laughs> He's taking a salary to do one thing, and he's doing something quite different. Um and but that fits with Marxist morality, right? <laughs> and then the other thing is, who's going to sign up for this? You know, I mean, are they, eventually I started to wonder, what's the what's the constituency, what's the customer base for you know people to to sign up for a Shakespeare class, but really you just learn that Shakespeare is a misogynist and um, a colonizer. What a downer! It is kind of, but you know, for some people, I think. I think, you know, conservatives have been um, writing books, including some very good books. Um, uh, I'm thinking of you know, Pure Dumbest Generation, among other books, um, complaining about education and how the, gen you know, one generation after another is increasingly miseducated. Um, and we knew that the leftists had really taken over the colleges, and we knew that the leftists were taking over the high schools, and we knew that they were getting to a point where they were even teaching this crazy stuff to kindergartners. And, you know, but I think we thought that our own kids were immune or somehow it wouldn't work. You know, um, the kids hear their teachers saying these things, but they, you know, they, never, um, they never believe it really. There's, but the thing is, you don't have to, a teacher doesn't have to convince all the students or interest all the students to have a really big impact. I mean, if only, and I think this is pretty much what we've seen, if only something between, you know, 1 and 10% of your students, the ones who are kind of teacher's pets and really love the whole experience of, being enlightened, you know, if only between 1% and 10% of your students become convinced of your radical Marxism or your angry feminism or your whatever it is, right, then that's a lot of people to, you know, dress in this crazy Antifa getup and go out there and, you know, start throwing Molotov cocktails. I mean, the you know, the ones that the teacher, these, the, you know, if you're really serious about this stuff, you know, what, what action would you be taking? I, I would add, again, as the years pass, right, it builds, right? It, the, influence, the influence grows more and more. Kids, and it just becomes sort of back the background, uh, sort of the leftist approach to, to the world becomes the background. They still they can operate, you know, as, as Korean pursuing their own careers or something. But when it comes to a lot of those questions about history and literature and so on, this is all they get, and they don't know any different. And that's why your book goes through the roughly the history of English and 
uh, American literature and identifies things in those periods that are politically incorrect, roughly speaking. So uh, you, you begin with, uh, you know, the, the, the good old old English age, and there we find, <laughs> there we find the professors don't like the heroism there. What's going on? Right. Well, I, I did the, in the political incorrect guide. I did try to make a positive contribution, right? So I have all these complaints about how people are being miseducated, but my main complaint is just that people are not getting the classics anymore, right? And and um, something that um, that actually you you say in the new book that you've written and that's coming out from Regnery uh, in a little while that I think is really telling is that, um, you know, most people who read great books are reading them essentially for the psychology and the moral insights and the life lessons. Um, you know, they're not reading them to do feminist criticism, but they're not also really reading them to do, you know, old-fashioned analysis, literary analysis either. Um, the reason the great books are great is because they're about what human life is really like, and they have all these fantastic insights that you can recognize and apply to your own life. So um, what I tried to do was with every period of literature um, find, you know, what is the core politically incorrect insight or uh, illustration or representation or dramatization of something that really matters to human beings and what could we learn from it which the professors are not letting us learn because they don't want to teach the literature and the um the thing that i found out with um just reviewing a little bit of literature on um you know academic writing on beowulf and uh the other old english poetry that actually inspired the lord of the rings which still has a huge appeal to people right um is that the professors uh, are, you know, a lot of them just sneer at the idea that um, that bravery is admirable, right? I mean, they take the attitude that, uh, you know, you never need to die for your country and that it's really not all that impressive if a man laid down his life for his friends. And, you know, <laughs> um, whereas the whole literature of the kind of primitive heroic age of the English-speaking peoples um, is full of very compelling pictures of bravery that are really hard to resist if you're, if you're human. I mean, I, I, maybe my favorite is, um, just in the secular things, is the Battle of Malden, uh, which um, J.R.R. Tolkien really liked and um, translated and and used well, he used all of that literature for the Lord of the Rings. Um, but it's it's a um, it's a battle in which the Anglo-Saxons, um, who themselves had invaded England and conquered the Celts, uh, the original Britons, um, were trying to fend off invasion by the Danes, you know, aka the Vikings, and um, the. Uh, the commander of the Anglo-Saxons, from whose uh, point of view we're hearing the story, um, makes a fatal mistake, which causes his side to lose the battle and his men to be killed. And, I, you know, I was looking at this just at the time when um, 
the whole war in Iraq and Afghanistan and the anti-war movement on the left in the United States was at its height, right? And um, people were talking about Pat Tillman, who was the football player who volunteered to fight in Afghanistan and then was killed by friendly fire, and then there was an attempt to cover up how he had actually died, you know. Um, And so, you know, I found a a professor, I think it was Arizona State or somewhere, who had made all these posters and put them up about how, um, you know, Pat Tillman had basically, the whole thing was just ugly. He had died for no purpose because he was killed by friendly fire. Um, But it occurred to me that, you know, I mean, the fact is, just like in the Battle of Malden, many of the deaths in a war are because of the mistakes of people on your side, right? I mean, that's sort of like an inevitable, it's one of the inevitable ways that people die in war. The Battle of Malden, the the Anglo-Saxons are in very, am I correct in saying, they've got a very good defensive posture, but then the leader, maybe out of some idea of heroism, leads his men out to face the invaders on more equal ground. Is that correct? You know, I think it might be the other way around. I think he might let the Vikings come over the water. Okay. The, I can't remember which way it is. But, yeah, he gives up his very defensible position um, uh, to in order to – because he – from his overmode, from from pride, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, he's got a character flaw, basically. Um, and his character flaw, which is not very much unlike the character flaws you know, of the people who covered up Pat Tillman's friendly fire death. Right. I mean, this is what this is what military commanders are like. Right. They they do things like that. So my son's in the army and every you know, people just know that there's a lot of bureaucracy and a lot of a lot of problems in military command. Um, But, you know, you can't defend your country without an army and you can't have an army without commanders who are human. And, you know, so some people are going to die by mistake or by, you know, malfeasance or but the fact that they have volunteered to defend everything that they love at the cost of their lives is still noble and beautiful and something that we should all admire because it is, in fact, admirable in itself. Um, and also because, you know, if we don't, then we're just kind of volunteering to be raped and pillaged and killed by Vikings. We need people like that. We need we we need the people who believe in the heroic ideal, uh, and they're, yeah, they're going to be they're going to have pride, and they're going to make mistakes, and they're, you know, they're 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 sometimes sometimes they may even have have a cowardly act here and there, but uh, uh, y- you know, you you <laughs> you're you're not going to make it without them. Yeah, no, absolutely not. Let's pause for a moment for what I believe is one of the best schools of higher learning in the country, the University of Dallas, the premier Catholic liberal arts university in Texas. With campuses in Irving, Texas, and Rome, Italy, UD offers a rigorous and exciting core curriculum that sets it apart, an education rooted in the great works of Catholic and Western tradition, an education that ennobles and enables students in their pursuit of wisdom, truth, and virtue. Fidelity to man requires fidelity to the truth, which alone is the guarantee of freedom and of the possibility of integral human development. Those are the words of Pope Benedict, quoted at the University of Dallas, and guiding educators in all the departments of the university. Undergraduate, graduate, and certificate programs are available. 
Start your college odyssey at the University of Dallas today. Go to udallas.edu to learn more. When we move forward into the Middle Ages, we get into the age of chivalry, of Chaucer. What is it about that age that you would highlight that might strike the professors as politically incorrect? Oh, my heavens. Uh, it's the whole gender thing, right? So, so um, uh, modern women, I mean, we're all taught to believe that until, you know, maybe the 1970s, women were all slaves, right? We were barefoot and pregnant. We were, nobody could have a job, a real job. Um, we all had to stay in the kitchen and make sandwiches or something is the, is the, the myth, right? Um, in fact, I mean, it, that myth is so pervasive that even I, who am the world's ultimate anti-feminist, right, find myself find it sort of like seeping into my brain, okay? So the other, I'm, I'm taking a uh, philosophy class um, at the Institute for Catholic Culture with my 25-year-old son and his wife. Um, it's, reading, it's philosophy 101, reading platonic dialogues, right? Okay, so I reread uh, the symposium, and oh my heavens, I had just forgotten all that stuff about Diotima, the the... Um, prophetess that Socrates has the conversation with, right? And, okay, so this is fiction. This is Plato doing fiction. This is Socrates making up a story. Um, but, you know, if you here I am reading something that was written B.C., hundreds of years B.C., right? And I'm finding myself surprised because at how sort of spunky, intelligent, and taken seriously, this female character is in this dialogue. It didn't surprise me when I read it decades ago in college or whatever, because I hadn't been brainwashed even a little bit into thinking that, you know, the whole history of the human race was women were slaves. But we've now got this in our head, that they never had a voice, they were not, you know. Anyway, Chaucer will also disabuse you of this misimpression. Wife of Bath. Yes, because the wife of Bath, and I mean, she is quite the character, and she definitely speaks up for herself. Um, and but the whole, and it's not just the wife of Bath. I mean, the Canterbury Tales is just full of um, very interesting, very uh, motivated, and um, uh, in control of their own lives, women. Um, and, you know, and it, it's just... It's fascinating to see all that and to see the insights that the people in the Middle Ages had about how men and women are different from each other and how they relate to each other. Um, and it's all also happening at this fascinating time in the history of the Battle of the Sexes, as it were, um, with chivalry coming in. So um, the 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 whole idea of this kind of courtesy where men let women go first, literally and figuratively, uh, came in around that time, first as a literary fad, um, where the man would develop an adulterous passion <clears throat> for some woman, married woman high above him and write poetry to her and suffer in her service. And um, But what's really interesting to me is how that ideal that was originally literally a literary fad um, actually 
seeped into um, the real relations between men and women, uh, and particularly in marriage. So um, in the Franklin's tale, uh, there's a story about uh, a married couple, um, and it, there's complications from there, but the beginning of it is how they end up getting married. Um, the man courts and pursues the woman, and they come to a kind of a private agreement that although they're going to get married according to the regular kind of marriage rules in which um, the wife obeys her husband, they're also going to keep alive this courtly relationship where um, the husband basically, or the man basically obeys the woman because she's his ideal and his courtly passion. So that there's a kind of a mutual obedience and mutual respect built into the relationship that I think is really interesting and, you know, it's still my ideal. What, what do the professors want to do with Shakespeare now? Oh, you know, I think Shakespeare, I, I mean, cancel him, right? Because Shakespeare expresses all these human things that, you know, nobody's interested in anymore. And he was a colonizer. I mean, look at the Tempest, right? That's... Um, and a misogynist, look at the taming of the shrew, um, and, uh, you know, I mean, why should, we, why should we listen to some dead white male, really, on any subject? In the 80s and 90s, when, when I was in grad school and, and assistant professor, it was to turn Shakespeare into a transgressive character, right? All, all the cross-dressing that, that, that went on. But I think you're right, in the last 15 years, that, that kind of wore itself out. And we, we've done we've done that with Shakespeare. He, you know, how many times can be can you be transgressive before it gets boring, right? Uh, so so yeah, I think um, I, I well well we've entered a cruder a more crude condition now. I think in the last couple of years relative to the relative to the corpus. Now, 17th century, the big problem was is Christianity, isn't it? Yeah, I think so. I mean, I I I find John Donne and John Milton and uh, you know very compelling um, on account of their their Christianity, but um, that is not popular to to you know put it mildly with uh, the professoriate these days. I mean, Milton is kind of um, proof that you don't have to be dumb to be a Christian, you know. And who wants <laughs> who wants to hear that? I mean, he's the, probably the most erudite of anybody writing English literature. Um, and um, and also, you know, another thing that I should bring up about Milton in these days is that Milton is um, one of the earliest champions of freedom of speech, which is um, now completely out of fashion. Um, his idea was, uh, let's have a free market of ideas. Let, you know, the way to refute bad ideas is to let them out there so you can argue against them. And after all, God put us in a world with temptation. And so, you know, it's not for us to to make it so nobody hears anything wrong ever. I mean, that's not the kind of the world that God created, so it's not the kind of world that we should expect to live in. Um, but it is, unfortunately, the kind of world that um, more and more people expect to live in. In other words, a world in which they never hear anything that uh, disagrees with what they think already. I want to live in that kind of world, but I, but I never do. Not even in my own home, not even with my own son.
You go through uh, Restoration, 18th century, Romanticism, uh, the 19th century, Modernism, and so on. We get into American literature. And then you have a concluding section on how you can do this by yourself. If you won't get the canon, the corpus, of English and American literature, you the book does have a, a bit of a roadmap for how you can proceed, uh, including the memorization of verse. But let me ask this as as a final question: Did is is all this the reason why you just didn't pursue an academic career? You you got your PhD, you you're obviously an accomplished writer. You you could have published academic criticism. Why why didn't you why didn't you do it? Well, you know, it's really a mix of things. I mean, it, is, it didn't help that the profession was descending into complete insanity at the time. I mean, that, that was definitely a factor. Um, and then I think it was a factor that I wrote my dissertation on the wrong thing. Um, <laughs> and, but then I think, I mean, honestly, I have to say, I always wanted to get married and raise a big family. Um, and that was my priority, and I couldn't see really entering into a, you know, rat race for tenure in my crucial childbearing years. Um, so I kind of missed, you know, the opportunity to do that because I prioritized other things. And I didn't get the big family that I wanted, but I did uh, raise one totally fantastic son. So, um, uh, who, you know, reads literature and is not a communist. So that, it worked out. <laughs> <laughs> you know, most PhDs in literature, uh, I think it's shortened now because the requirements have, have gone down. But, you know, it used to be, it'd take your six, seven years to finish yeah, a doctorate in, six. Yeah, in, in literary about. studies. Mm-hmm. But, but then you go out six years, you're 28, you're 29 years old now, you go out on the job market, maybe it takes you a couple of years, you're a lecturer for a few years here, or an adjunct, and you finally, if things go well, you get a, a tenure-track job, you're 31, 32 years old. That's usually a six-year proposition to get tenure, and until you get tenure, you're insecure, you got to work hard, you got to get published, you got to build up your teaching portfolio, you do your service, administrative work, so that you really can't settle down, focus on, let's say, family life. Right, or maybe even on your actual research interests. You know, I mean, it, yeah, it, it, it's a scramble, and I just wasn't up for it for a variety of reasons. Yeah. The, the, the book is The Politically Incorrect Guide to English and American Literature. Elizabeth Cantor, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.